This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. It has been weeks since most of us have been out to eat. Today, restaurants in Georgia were allowed to open for dine-in service as the state continues to loosen coronavirus restrictions. Tennessee is reopening retail stores. Kentucky is reopening some health care services. Dog groomers can reopen in Wisconsin. Where coronavirus has hit harder, it's different. The governor of New Jersey said today restrictions continue indefinitely, and the governor of New York said he expected to extend them for the city and its suburbs. But the lunch crowd came back in parts of Georgia, as our affiliate WSB found. A chance to eat inside a restaurant. Kim Cassetta says this Brookhaven Waffle House was her first choice. It's been a family hangout. We uh, saw Evander Holyfield and his family in here one day. The champ wasn't here this day, but the company says no matter who walks in, some things haven't changed. They're going to get the welcome to Waffle House, the greeting that we're all uh, excited to be able to give them. But when they come in, it'll be very clear where they can and cannot sit. Company spokesperson in Jerry Boss showed us the big red tape strapped across some of the booths. And some of the stools are also off limits to maintain safe social distancing. The cooks and servers are all wearing masks. And X marks the spot on where you can stand as you wait for a seat. Some don't like Governor Kemp's decision to allow restaurants like this to reopen their dining rooms. But Boss believes many of the critics may be able to work from home while still collecting a paycheck. It is very easy to say that we shouldn't be when they still have all of those things. We want to be here to make sure that everybody who wants to and has the opportunity to can take care of themselves and their family. That's the American way. As for Kim Cassetta, she feels comfortable eating inside and says there's a sense of home here. And it all starts off with Waffle House. (laughs) What can't get any more American than Waffle House, right? Many will never feel comfortable venturing out or reopening a business without a vaccine, and most experts think that's at least a year away. Some scientists are considering rather unconventional ways to speed up the process. One of them raises some moral questions. We're joined by Dr. Angela Baldwin of Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, who's also part of our medical team here at ABC News. Dr. Baldwin, this method involves injecting healthy adults with live coronavirus. Correct. So this is called a challenge trial where healthy adults are divided into two groups. One group receives the placebo, and the other group receives the potential vaccine. But both groups are injected with the virus. And the point is for for researchers to see how effective the vaccine is against the virus. And this kind of speeds up the timeline because normally, in a normal situation, once somebody receives a vaccine, the researchers just have to kind of wait for that person to naturally be infected with uh, whatever uh, virus or disease that the vaccine is intended to treat. Is it the only way to do this? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> this uh, Normally, vaccine trials go through three phases. Phase one and phase two uh, help determine the specific dosing that's safe and then, you know, an overall kind of safety of the vaccine. And then in phase three is when they do these large very large trials where they enroll thousands of patients and uh, half receive the vaccine, the other half isn't. But then they just kind of track them and follow them throughout their daily lives and see, okay, well, this group, you know, they were exposed to the virus and it looks like the vaccine worked. The problem is these are just very long and, and kind of a bit cumbersome. And so that's why some researchers are proposing this challenge trial to kind of bypass phase three. Does it raise any moral dilemmas? Oh, definitely raises some moral dilemmas. They do try to mitigate the risk, but the fact of the matter is we are taking otherwise healthy adults and injecting them with a virus that could have serious consequences 
including death. Now, as I said, they do try to mitigate the risk. They would only be enrolling healthy adult volunteers without underlying uh, medical conditions. But the problem is we do know that, unfortunately, there are young people who are still dying from COVID-19 who may also not have any underlying conditions. There's still so much we don't know that just makes this completely unsafe. And the other problem is if somebody does get very sick, you know, we're dealing with a health care crisis right now where the critical care that one may need may not always be readily available and resources may be scarce. So to inject somebody with a virus that may potentially kill them and put them in a situation where they urgently need critical care that might not be available uh, raises a few eyebrows from some ethicists. I guess it's tempting, though, when everyone wants a vaccine. This seems like the speediest way. You know, it, it could. And, and one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is how much does this speed up the, uh, the normal course of us finding a vaccine, right? So if it only speeds it up by one month, uh, maybe not that great of an idea. If it speeds it up by six months, uh, eight months, then okay, maybe. But also the thing to realize is that the challenge trial is only one part of a, of a two-step process that these researchers are um, suggesting would replace phase three. So you still have the challenge trial where the people are given the live virus. But then in the second part, they would need to test the vaccine on the most vulnerable members of the population, right? The elderly, people with underlying medical conditions, because these are the people who really need the vaccine. So we need to make sure it's safe in them. So during this second phase, they would give each of those, those types of people the vaccine, but they would not be injecting them with a the, with the virus. So that means we're still in this kind of phase where we're waiting for these people to, in the natural course of their days, be exposed to the virus. So it's really not shortening the, the, the third phase by that much when you think about it. Who's going to decide ultimately? You know, that's a very good question. I think ultimately we have these things called internal review boards, IRBs, and they are designed to look out for the welfare of participants and subjects in, in studies. And I think it's basically going to fall on the individual IRBs to decide whether or not they're going to allow this to, um, to commence in their institution. Dr. Angela Baldwin of the ABC News Medical Unit. While the world waits for a vaccine, all of us adapt to new routines out of our offices and working from, say, the kitchen table. Firms are now debating how and whether to repopulate offices while workers are deciding whether they're comfortable taking off the sweatpants and putting back on the suit. Kent Zimmerman advises law firms at Zeughauser Group. He joins us from Chicago. We're all kind of getting used to this, aren't we? Yes. You know, I think this is going better than many law firms thought it would. Um, technology working well generally. People are productive at home. Uh, some people even like it. I mean, what's not to like? You can be in your pajamas and still accomplish the same kind of work. Uh, you know, in a candid moment, a lot of lawyers would probably tell you that. Um, and I think that there is upside for both lawyers and for firms. The, the flexibility is something that people have wanted since before the crisis. And some law firms before the crisis were taking small steps towards being more flexible about where people worked. And they saw upside both in attracting talent who wanted to be uh, working where they were comfortable, where, they were, where it was convenient. Also for the law firms, there's a big uh, expense, of course, on the real estate side. Real estate for most law firms is their second biggest expense behind paying lawyers. So they're interested long-term, many law firms are, 
in using less space. Why would any firm go back to renting expensive space again if this is working? It's, that's a great question. Different firms are different. So some firms before the crisis were happy to uh, move towards less space. And I think that the crisis will accelerate the move towards less space for those firms. Other firms, though, before the crisis had a culture of being in the office together. They placed a premium on FaceTime. And I think after the crisis, some of those firms will revert to form and they will want to be in the office more. So there will be some that accelerate towards work at home more and take on less space. And I think others will want to snap back to how they were previously. Law firms, like many other firms, can be notoriously inflexible, though, about people's time. Has this showed us that it can work differently? I think that this uh, crisis has proven that actually it can work pretty well for many lawyers in many firms. Different lawyers have practices that lend themselves to working remotely. So, for example, a lawyer who needs to appear in court or take depositions in person, that doesn't work as well remotely, of course. Others, though, can work quite productively uh, from anywhere, and that works for the firm uh, and for their clients. When you ask people what the impediments are to remote working, some of the things that come up are things like whether working remotely is an impediment to mentoring opportunities for young and up-and-coming lawyers. They ask about whether working remotely is an impediment to uh, training those lawyers, and they also ask about whether working remotely is an impediment to collaborating together. And so some firms will find uh, ways to address those impediments uh, and work around them. Uh, Others will feel the need to be in person more often. Kent Zimmerman, a principal at Zeughauser Group, joining us from Chicago. Coming up, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, answers your questions about coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And with me now is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And there is some big news about colleges and universities considering reopening in the fall. Let's go through this systematically, how it would work. Well, first of all, Amy, we have to acknowledge this is a complex situation. The health and safety of not just this population, but the entire college and university community is obviously priority number one. But here are some things that we know at this point. Medically, we know that the college age group is at a lower risk of severe COVID-19 disease. We also know that in this age group and in this environment, social distancing is definitely going to be uniquely challenging. Um, And we also know that there are people in these communities, whether they're college students with pre-existing medical conditions or the staff or faculty that work in and around colleges, that could be vulnerable and may be at higher risk as well. What options should be considered? Well, I think there are some theories that are worth really exploring. The first thing is, is can we modify the timing, the spacing, some of the classroom activities, some of the other activities? This shouldn't be looked at like an all or none decision in terms of sports, theater, dormitory, dining. All of those things could be modified. Um, It's not an all or one situation. And we have to remember that masks... Once the CDC recommended that for the general public, they may be a key tool in reducing the transmission of this virus in the college communities. From a health standpoint, what do we still need to figure out? 
Well, look, luckily we have a little bit of time to do this, but I think there are still a lot of things we don't know. To begin with, we don't know what the role of rapid testing on a college campus can look like. We don't know whether college students, whether our kids, will actually be compliant with some of these social distancing measures. And we really don't know when you talk about risks, which is worse right now, going back to college in some way, shape or form or taking another year plus and not going back. You both have to weigh those risks head to head, and it's not an easy answer. All right, Dr. Jen, I know you're sticking around to answer questions in just a bit. In the meantime, we turn now to ABC's Kira Phillips in Washington, D.C., with the latest headlines for us. Hi, Amy. Well, these are some of the stories that we're watching. Plans to reopen the economy are taking shape in a number of states. Restaurants in Atlanta starting up again with new rules in place for diners today, including tables six feet apart and servers wearing masks. And in New Jersey, Governor Phil Murphy is unveiling what he calls responsible reopening, driven by, quote, data science and common sense. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott also detailing the plan for ending his statewide stay-at-home orders. And re-emerging for the first time today after a pretty brutal bout of the virus, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson apologizing for being away for three weeks and warning it's too soon to end the lockdown in the U.K. Speaking outside Number 10 Downing Street, Johnson says we are now beginning to turn the tide on this disease, but says He refuses to throw away the public's effort and sacrifice by relaxing the lockdown too soon. Kira, thank you. Well, the mayor of Las Vegas made headlines last week when she volunteered the city as a control group to see if social distancing is working. Joining us now to talk about how and when Las Vegas will reopen is Clark County Commissioner Marilyn Kirkpatrick. Welcome, Commissioner. And I want to first start by asking you how you feel about Mayor Goodman's comments. Well, I don't agree with her. Um, You know, my colleagues and I who oversee the beautiful Las Vegas Strip um, feel that we have to, our highest priority needs to be the health and safety of not only our residents who work on this trip, but the visitors who come to visit us. Yeah, and that said, the mayor also feels hotels, casinos, restaurants should reopen right now. When do you think they should reopen and what will the economic impact be? Well, we've been working every single day with um, our medical experts across the state, our resort association, our McCarran Airport, and the convention authorities. So we are working in that direction. Testing is a key to getting us back open, and we are in the middle of expanding that testing opportunity. So we will open only when it's safe and we have the most stringent priorities and policies in place. Can you talk a little bit about specifically how the county is working with the casinos there and other businesses to prevent another outbreak when you do eventually reopen? Well, I'd go back to we we have been successfully doing social distancing. Uh, We are ramping up testing today. We can do up to 2,000 tests a day. We anticipate by June 1st being able to do 10,000 tests. Our hotel partners and our airport. Uh, They're making some adjustments so that our visitors feel very safe coming back. And that is our priority. And we'll invite everybody back when we feel that we can meet those needs. And do do you, how do you feel the people of Clark County are doing in terms of doing that social distancing and following the guidelines? You know, we're doing a great job every single day. We look at different ways. I mean, even as we bring back our own staffs, we have to think about how do we have that social distancing in the grocery stores, we have lines out. We're running groceries lines one way. 
Um, so I, I'm very proud of what we're doing in our community on the social distancing piece. Well, Commissioner Marilyn Kirkpatrick, we know it's a tough job. Thank you for leading uh, the people who you serve. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. When Americans get back to work, some schools may still be closed. So where do we go from there? The CEO of child care provider Bright Horizons, Stephen Kramer, is here to tell us. And Stephen, thanks for being with us. I know that you have locations, daycare locations across the country. How many of your facilities remain open? So we have 150 uh, centers here across the United States that uh, are continuing to be operational and are uh, clearly working under COVID-19 protocols. Yeah, that is pretty surprising, I think, for a lot of us. And, and I'm sure it's so helpful to so many who need your uh, facilities. How are you able to keep them open safely? Absolutely. So first and foremost, we are focused in those 150 centers on providing care for essential workers, uh, most typically healthcare workers. And so first and foremost, we are uh, really focused on that particular population. In terms of keeping uh, our staff as well as children safe, we have implemented uh, processes and procedures in conjunction with a medical expert, Dr. Kristen Moffitt from Boston Children's Hospital, whereby we are ensuring that we are able to keep children safe, keep staff safe, and really make sure that we are operating uh, both from a hygiene perspective as well as from a safety perspective really uh, in an appropriate way. So 150 centers open right now. What changes will need to be implemented, though, when daycares fully open back up? Yeah, so I I think families can expect a number of changes uh, from what they experienced prior to the pandemic. Uh, So examples include uh, pickup and drop-off. So uh, oftentimes they will be seeing either staggered pickup and drop-off or alternatively, uh, it may be curbside uh, pickup and drop-off. I think certainly uh, health checks either being asked to be done at home or being done at the center when they arrive is an important element of keeping everyone safe. Um, In addition to that, uh, the teachers, they will be wearing masks when uh, when families return. And certainly in the Bright Horizon centers that are open today, our teachers are wearing masks. Uh, So those are the kinds of things they might expect in addition to enhanced hygiene protocols. Yeah, and Stephen, is there anything parents can do now to be prepared for what's to come? I think there are things that parents can be doing. I think first and foremost, it's really important for parents to make sure that they are checking the health of their child each morning and each end of day to make sure that they are not bringing their child if they have any sign or symptom of a health issue. I think in addition to that, children won't be used to the teachers wearing masks. That's not something that they would have uh, experienced previously. And so my recommendation uh, would be to, as a parent, start wearing masks around the house, start to educate your child that heroes wear masks. And certainly the teachers in the centers are heroes. And so experiencing and exposing them to that concept is important. And then finally, I would encourage parents to prepare themselves. Um, They need to have a little bit of extra patience And I would encourage them to show appreciation for the teachers who are working tirelessly through both now and in the future uh, in the child care center environment. I think so many parents who are home right now have a absolute renewed appreciation of teachers. And I love what you said. Heroes wear masks. That's awesome. Stephen Kramer, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
Up next right here, those masks are suddenly everywhere and officials say it's a good idea, but the sight of them can frighten our children. Some techniques for helping them deal when we come back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Well, new questions every day about this pandemic emergency. Dr. Jen Ashton is back with us with some answers to your questions. And Dr. Jen, we've got our first question. I have a family member who needs to fly for work. Are there any other safety measures besides gloves and masks that you would recommend? That is really the most important for the passenger. You can try to plan the time of that travel, maybe to lower peak hours if that's possible. But what's interesting about travel is that some degree of travel is not going to be optional or elective in the near future. So we're starting to see, as we've heard before, airlines start to play around with how they can help reduce the risk. So again, cover your mouth and nose, clean your hands. And for now, as an individual, that's the best you can do. All right. Our next question, are sinus drainage and post-nasal drip possible symptoms of COVID-19 even without a fever? Interesting, because we're hearing the CDC revise the symptom list, right? They added six symptoms to COVID-19. It used to be fever, cough, shortness of breath. Now they've extended it to body aches, headache, loss of smell, taste, sore throat even, headache. But here's the important thing with post-nasal drip and allergies. We are in allergy season. And as I always say, you can have more than one thing at a time. So yes, it's possible that you could have a mild case of COVID and allergies. And one of the new symptoms the CDC added was a sore throat. So again, above the neck symptoms, it is possible. And I'm sure we're going to be seeing that list of symptoms get expanded in the future. Next question. I am a college professor recovering from COVID-19 and am struggling with sudden loss of secondary language fluency. Has there been any research on cognitive impairments related to COVID-19? No formal research and data out yet, Amy, but you can imagine how frightening that would be if you start to notice these. You and I have talked here about neurologic manifestations to COVID-19. There have been reports in the medical literature of people presenting with headaches, seizure, dizziness, loss in smell and taste are neurologic symptoms. So cognitive function, we may see that certainly in seriously ill COVID-19 patients who have been in an ICU. That's to be expected, but we'll, we'll hope that those things return back to normal. Okay. Next question. We've been talking a lot about pregnancy. This one about new moms. Is it safe to vaccinate babies or give booster MMR shots without testing them for COVID-19? Any expected complications like fever or anything else? A couple of things with this, because it's really important. We've heard the American Academy of Pediatrics talk about the risks of delaying infant immunizations in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. Number one, fever is possibly a good reaction of our body to anything, whether it's a vaccination or exposure to something like COVID. Right now, pediatricians' offices are not testing babies for COVID before they administer routine immunizations, but that may change in the future. And we have to remember those immunizations are important. So any concerns really want the parents to talk to the pediatrician. All right. Great advice. As always, Dr. Jen, thank you. And if you have questions for Dr. Ashton, you can submit them on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, masks and face coverings have become such a familiar sight around the country in this coronavirus pandemic, with a number of states now requiring them during visits to essential businesses and on public transportation. But the sight of them can be scary, especially for children. ABC's Ariel Reshef has more on what you can do to help lessen their anxiety. 
Hey there, Amy. As you know, kids can ask some pretty tough questions, and this can actually be scary for them. As you mentioned, when they see people out there wearing masks, they see their parents wearing masks. But experts say there are ways to help them adapt to this new normal, and some of them are not only just educational, but they can even be fun. Vacant streets, shuttered businesses, empty playgrounds. The images of this COVID-19 pandemic are hard for even adults to process. I think it was weird. But for kids like four-year-old Allie and five-year-old Adriana Alfano, seeing people wearing masks is perhaps the most jarring. It, they just thought it was really strange. A new normal forcing families like the Alfanos to have some tough conversations. It does open up a, a big can of worms and lots of different questions. Public face covering now recommended by the CDC for adults and children ages two and up. How do you think the imagery of people wearing masks can affect kids? Well, initially when kids see someone wearing a mask, depending on what they associated with before, it could bring up some fear. New dad and entrepreneur Trevor George and his wife Morgan wanted to help ease that anxiety. We believe that in order to solve this, Everyone has to do their part. With his Michigan-based t-shirt company struggling. When the pandemic hit the economy, it hit us. The two created Mask Club. And she's like, there has to be a way you can help and work with your brands at the same time. Rehiring more than 50% of their furloughed employees to produce masks for adults with beloved characters like Hello Kitty, Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman. We, we have an eight-month-old, and when my wife and I put on our Batman or our Wonder Woman masks... He immediately reaches for the colors. Well, wearing a mask as a parent that has a familiar logo can help your child be more at ease. Mask Club, a passion project with added purpose. And for every mask that's purchased, we donate a medical grade version to first responders in partnership with the First Responders Children's Foundation. Filling the need and creating a bright spot when families need it most. Having some fun, some levity, and then mixing that with information can be really beneficial. Trevor says that they have donated nearly 100,000 masks already. Amy, clearly this idea of wearing a branded logoed mask and also doing some good while you're in the process of that is really resonating. Oh, yeah, it's a win-win. I was even saying, I know kids, it's scary to them. It's scary to me sometimes when you see people because it is jarring seeing people in masks all of a sudden. What tools can parents use when they talk about this with their children? Well, Dr. Taylor says it's important to impress upon your kids that they're taking care of themselves, they're taking care of others. This is a safety precaution, just like wearing a helmet when you ride a bike or buckling your seatbelt when you're in the car. And she also says that it's important to have these honest conversations with your kids. Just be upfront with them. Lead by example. When you're comfortable wearing your own mask, children see that and they're more at ease as well. Makes sense. And kids are certainly resilient. Ariel, thank you so much for bringing us this. We appreciate it. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for some thoughts on this. For some perspective here, Amy, we have to remember it was just recently that the CDC made a major change, revising their guidelines, recommending face coverings for the general public, not to protect that person wearing the mask, but to protect others. So as the saying we're so used to hearing here in New York City, it's not about me, it's about we. But here's the interesting thing from a medical and scientific standpoint. Remember that the data on face coverings or masks protecting you was done in a lab, right? That's why we say in the hospital setting, we put masks on sick people, we put different kind of masks on healthcare workers, but there's a big difference between scientific research done in a lab setting and those done in a real life setting. So we're seeing one major Boston medical center has dropped the rate of its staff cases of COVID-19 dramatically once they instituted a policy where everyone, staff, 
patients and visitors started wearing masks. So we'll see how it plays out in our country. Dr. Ashton, thank you. you. And when we come back, the army of volunteers in one city working hard to help frontline heroes shine. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Day in and day out, healthcare professionals are working tirelessly on the front lines. Luckily, one Houston, Texas-based organization is making sure these heroes have a little less to worry about at home. Houston, Texas COVID Sitters is offering free household management and tutoring services for local medical workers and their families. The company was founded by two Baylor College medicine students who are with me right now. We have Madhushri Zope and Anshul Thadani. Thank you both for being with us, and I want to ask you both both as medical students, what inspired you to do this? Basically, we had we had spent some time watching our mentors and our teachers do these really incredible things on the front lines. And with our medical education taking a little bit of a, of a detour right now, um, we were looking for ways that we could further support them and help them in this endeavor. And so the household management stuff was definitely a need that we saw that we could fill. That's beautiful. And I understand your volunteers are all graduate students in the Houston area. Can you talk a little bit about the work that they're doing, Madhushri? Yeah, of course. So they are actually providing child care services, pet sitting services. Um, They also volunteer to help out with like pharmacy runs, grocery runs. Um, One of our classmates has reached out to us and she actually helped co-found the tutoring branch of our organization. So we're providing online tutoring for all the Houston area children who are currently out of school for the semester. That is incredible. I want to hear a little bit about what you're hearing. What's the response been like from those healthcare workers? Sure. It's been super supportive. Um, our, our teachers and our mentors have seemed really grateful for what we're doing. They've reached out to us with ideas and encouragement and have helped us sort of get the word out to more of their peers and more of their colleagues as well. And what do you hope, where do you hope this leads to? Do you, are you going to continue doing this uh, for how long? And, 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 and what do you hope the outcome is? So we're going to try and keep going as long as we have a strong volunteer base, as long as our um, Clinical schedule so far permits us to continue volunteering with the healthcare workers community. Um, I think in terms of long-term outcomes, regardless of what time point we end at, it'll be helpful to kind of establish those relationships between the student body um, and the healthcare workers in the Houston area. I think that's going to be a valuable network and community going forward. Well, we are certainly indebted to you, and uh, I know a lot of us feel so hopeful with uh, people like you in the medical field coming up, knowing what's important, giving back, and volunteering your services, despite how busy you are both right now. Madhushri Zope and Anshul Thadani, thank you for all that you do, and thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank Thank you you for having us. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for some final thoughts on this Monday. Well, Amy, I want to take you back to medical school in some ways and and learn how to think like a doctor. And what I mean by that is as we look to reopen nail salons, camps, beaches, colleges down the road, how do you learn to stratify risk? So in medical school, what we're taught is you have to ask four key questions. What's the risk of doing something? What's the risk of not doing something? 
and what's the benefit of doing something and what's the benefit of not doing it. And in some cases, you can plug in actual numbers to that answer. But that really helps you make a medical decision based on fact and not fear and evidence and not emotion. And this is something, though, that people have differing medical opinions on. Different studies say different things. Right. And so everyone's trying to interpret these politically as well, in addition to medically. How do we make that all work? Listen, this is a complicated process. But if you learn to think like that and think like a doctor in terms of stratifying risk, usually it leads you down a path where you can make an informed and educated decision. Because it's not just what's the risk of doing it and what's the advantage of doing it, you really have to tease it out to those four parts. And when you do that, then you can see, for example, you know, going to the beach. What's the risk of not going to the beach? You're going to miss out on some fun. But what is the risk of going? You may yourself get sick or infect others. So when you go down these difficult decisions that we're all going to be making in the next weeks, months, and, and possibly longer, I think if you learn to stratify risk versus benefit versus any option or alternative, uh, you can think like a doctor and usually make an informed choice, not just in medicine and public health, but sometimes in life as well. What about mental health? You know, that has to be factored in because in medicine, we don't make a decision in a vacuum. So we don't treat a body part. We treat a whole person. We're not treating an individual. We're treating a community here. So that's part of the risk stratification. And again, it's a very important habit that we are taught in medical school and should be continued we need it now more than ever. We certainly do. And we also need to understand that we're in this for the long haul. That's this right. isn't something that's going away in a matter no. of weeks or even months at this point. Yeah, that's right. We're going to be living with this virus and it is going to be living with us. So how we do that to minimize risk, we can never drop the risk to zero. In life, in medicine, in science, that is never possible. So it's how to lower the risk to an acceptable level that will be key. Dr. Ashton, thank you. And there is much more ahead on what you need to know. The bus stops here. Jerome Bettis on his memorabilia initiative to make sure more kids have the tools they need to learn from home. Stay with us. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back. A big part of homeschooling right now is technology. And while some schools provide this equipment, it is far from universal, leaving a lot of students in need. Well, here to help is football Hall of Famer Jerome Bettis, a.k.a. The Bus. Welcome, Jerome. And you announced on Twitter last week you are extending your memorabilia giveaway to raise money that will provide Pittsburgh area students with essential technology. So tell me a little bit about how the charity auction came about in the first place. Well, I, I got a call from Jack Kearney. He's the uh, head security officer for the Steelers. And, and he had reached out and said there was a, a young lady who had worked at training camp for years. And she's a teacher and she needed 60 computers for the kids in her district. And at that point, I said to myself, I, we got to help. Uh, that's what my foundation is all about. And we uh, immediately put a crowdfunding page up and created an auction or a raffle uh, so that people could get the memorabilia if they donated. And uh, it became a huge success. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that success. Uh, tell us how much you've been able to raise. What have you accomplished so far? 
So there were 60 kids that needed the, the computers. And in less than 24 hours, we were able to raise over $30,000 for those 60 kids in the Bethlehem Central School District to get the computers they needed. And as things started to happen, uh, we started to get some retweets. Um, ben Roethlisberger, uh, TJ Watt, Cam uh, Hayward, they all started to retweet. And next thing you know, it became a, a groundswell of support and uh, we started to get more than we actually needed. That is awesome. And this pandemic has further exposed America's inequalities. And you say, I know I was one of those kids. I, I was uh, growing up in the inner city of Detroit. It was a tough road. And I was fortunate enough to have someone who cared about the kids. His name was Reggie McKenzie. He started a foundation over 40 years ago and his his idea was he wanted to just help one kid and i know that i was that one kid mm. because he helped change the trajectory of my life and i want to in turn do the same things in changing kids lives and helping provide those opportunities and so uh, i started my foundation the bus stops here foundation.org for for people who want to try to help and donate because it, it's an opportunity to change kids lives and we've just got to uh, embrace that and go out and do it. And so now we've opened that up. We're starting to, to get donations from all over the country. And now we want to help kids all over the country get that technology that they really need to help with their school books. So, they, so you can donate to the bus stops here, foundation.org or text bus to 71777 and you can donate. Jerome Bettis, thank you for all that you do. We appreciate your time today. Thanks. No problem. Thank you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.